Hi everybody, my name is Ian and I'm doing my honors undergraduate thesis on the use of explainable AI in health. In this episode, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Greg Durrett. Dr. Durrett is a researcher from my home institution, the University of Texas at Austin, and he's an expert on natural language processing. He has many key takeaways for us, but I think one of the coolest is his use of text perturbation in his methodology. The last thing to mention here is that this episode is being done in part to promote the Explainable AI and in Health International Workshop. That workshop is being put on by Dr. Ying Ding and Dr. Justin Rousseau from the UT Austin AI Health Lab. With that, I really hope that you enjoy this episode. So uh, I'm an assistant professor at UT Austin in the computer science department. So my lab's work mostly focuses on a range of problems in natural language processing related to getting information out of text and manipulating that information and figuring out how, how, how to present it to a user. Um, so this ranges from kind of classical information extraction to question answering. And then once we've kind of retrieved information, uh, my group also looks a lot at tasks like um, document summarization, which are a little bit more focused on how you kind of format and present that to someone in a form that they can understand easily. Um, so we work across a kind of range of uh, a range of problems and the methods that we use, we typically aim for methods that are controllable and interpretable. So we want users to be able to take our systems and be able to basically get what they want out of them, uh, which brings some challenges compared to the traditional machine learning paradigm of, you know, you have a kind of fixed training data set and, uh, you know, you're just trying to learn a model to do that specific thing that doesn't actually you know, fully solve these problems in practice. And so we really need methods that can uh, bridge the gap to what individual users want. So that's a kind of summary of, uh, you know, the sort of high level approaches that we take and the problems that we look at. Once again, Dr. Durrett, thank you so much for being here. Are there any recent papers or projects that you would like to highlight? One of the things that's actually, I mean, it's not really tied in with the kind of healthcare stuff at this point, um, but we've been looking at uh, text generation using lattices as a data structure. So basically, uh, can we take a uh, document and then summarize it into many different summaries, which are all kind of related and which we can kind of encode in a compact way by basically recognizing commonalities in them. So basically, if these five summaries all start with the same string, can we, you know, basically kind of only store that string once? And the benefit of this representation is that it allows us to explore the search space of possible summaries more efficiently. Uh, so this is a paper that we have upcoming at NACL 2022. Um, and one of the goals that we'd like to see for this pushing forward is being able to take the fact that we have all of these different options and then allow a user to impose some kind of external control. Like, oh, I wanna see a summary that, that uh, kind of highlights this piece of content or something like that. Um, and then because we have so many options, it's easy for us to find something to, to give to them. Whereas, um, you know, kind of pushing that upstream into the uh, machine learning model is not always so straightforward. Could you maybe highlight something that an end user would want explained? So again, this, you know, this departs a little bit from the kind of medical related work that we've been doing, but, uh, you know, one of the, one of the tasks we've been looking at is a kind of range of, let's say, user focused summarization tasks. Um, the sort of classic version of this is query focused summarization, where uh, a user will have some very specific 
kind of information that they're looking for. And then we'll try to summarize uh, a document re with respect to that per particular information. Um, we've been looking at a little bit more of a flexible version of it called aspect-oriented summarization, um, where an aspect is a sort of vaguer notion of what they're looking for, more like a topic. Um, and so, you know, again, if you have summaries of some news articles, you know, maybe you're kind of studying, uh, you know, maybe you're a political science student and you're studying, you know, the government's response to disasters or something like that, in which case something that you might be looking for is kind of what did the government do in response to this and like how much uh, kind of humanitarian aid was sent. So that's the kind of thing where Ideally, we would be able to express the content in the document in a lot of different ways. And then if a user comes in with that idea, we can say, ah, okay, here's the summary that you want that's kind of targeted towards you. Yeah, so let's actually talk a little bit about um, medical use cases and medical applications of your research. So, I mean, I'll say that the, the kind of summarization stuff we've been looking at has, you know, we are looking at how to apply that to things like summarizing clinical notes. Um, but we've been looking at a kind of earlier, let's say kind of simpler piece of the uh, information extraction pipeline, which is how you uh, kind of get information out of, uh, you, you basically how you kind of extract values for certain features from radiology reports. Um, and one of the things we want to be able to do there is understand that we're extracting those values in a sort of correctly sourced way. So I'll come back to that in a little bit, but um, one of the ways that people assess this when you're using a deep network model is through these feature attribution methods like Lime, integrated gradients. There's a number of these techniques that have been proposed to say, take a prediction of a model and then say, okay, I'm going to try to understand which of the input features kind of contributed to that prediction in a positive way and maybe which of them actually made that prediction that ended up happening less likely. Um, so the issue with these techniques is that they just kind of give you a bunch of highlights of the input, but they don't really let you reason about what would happen under counterfactual scenarios. So, you know, what you, what you assume is that, you know, let's take the example of sentiment analysis as a simple one. It's like if you have a movie, movie review and the person says the movie was great, um, a lot of times these methods will highlight the word great um, and it'll say this is the most important word in the input. Um, but it's no guarantee that if you remove the word great, the probability of the prediction will necessarily decrease. There's lots of different mathematical ways that these are defined, but it's very hard to get this kind of causal uh, relationship between the inputs and the outputs. So what we did was we were looking at different feature attribution methods and saying, okay, we're going to take the text that we have and perturb it in realistic ways. So we did this for uh, primarily for a set of question answering tasks. And the idea was that by changing the text in realistic ways, we would then ask, okay, once you've made that change, what does the model actually do? And then did the feature attribution method really let us predict that? So for example, if the model is not gonna change its behavior, but the feature attribution method says, this token is really important, it's the only important token here, um, then somehow it's not really aligned with what is happening on that real counterfactual. Uh, 
And kind of conversely, if the model says that, oh, this token doesn't seem important at all, but then we change it and the model's prediction actually changes, then that also seems like an error of the interpretation method, right? Because it highlights, like, you know, the, the system should have said, hey, like, this token actually is, is kind of really important for what's going on here. So what we did is we put together a basically set of data sets and a way of evaluating how reliable these uh, feature attribution methods are for getting kind of real insights about our models. And so uh, I think it kind of helps us, helps illustrate a little bit of the disconnect between some of the methods that get used and some of the actual goals of explainable AI. Could you maybe explain on how domain knowledge of the radiologist is integrated into the types of clinical features the AI might also evaluate? So we've been looking at uh, at uh, kind of related information extraction problem. Like I said, kind of extracting these uh, features from uh, radiology reports, where we want to understand the values of particular, uh, or rather, kind of what's going on with related to particular things like mass effect or contrast enhancement, for example, which are kind of clinical indicators that uh, kind of something is happening in the brain or that the physician is seeing something in the scan. So when you look at these kinds of uh, indicators, I mean, first of all, like these kinds of things do come from domain knowledge, right? Um, uh, so our, our collaborators on this project, um, uh, led by Nick Bryan uh, at the uh, Dell Medical School at UT, um, were, you know, they, they basically kind of sat down and said, okay, you know, we want to have an interpretable model for understanding, you know, how we can diagnose the kind of, uh, you know, basically how we can go from a radiology report to a diagnosis based on a number of these features, right? So that the, the domain knowledge there partially came from how they set up the task. And then there's an additional level of, we know that when we're talking about something like mass effect, um, there's certain indicators for this like midline shift, which is indicating that like, you know, basically there's sort of stuff in the brain that's, that's kind of pushing it a little bit. Uh, so what we wanna do is we wanna make sure that our information extraction techniques are kind of correctly referencing the right indicators. And so uh, part of what we did there was look at how our systems that could extract this information lined up with what actual radiologists would in it, would annotate as kind of the most important indicators of those things. Um, so when you're talking about domain knowledge, I think sort of this often gets talked about in the uh, the term that gets used for this is plausibility, um, which is that we want our models to uh, make predictions, and we want them to make predictions in ways that humans can look at and say, yeah, that seems like how I would have understood that as well. And so I think having that alignment is pretty important for us. So I'm fascinated by this. Please go into a little bit more detail on the methodology of how you perturb text. A lot of the current methods basically automatically perturb text by doing things like dropping out each word in isolation or even sort of weirder things like all of the words are represented as vectors and you kind of bring all those vectors a little bit back towards zero, um, which is not realistic. It doesn't actually correspond to real language. Uh, and so part of what we were looking at was saying, okay, 
what how do we get the actual uh basically how do we find some perturbations that actually look realistic. I think there's some interesting ways to do this that involve things like automatic paraphrasing methods. Um, but what we did was we just annotated some data. Um, we went through and took a small set and said, okay, we think that this kind of word could be changed here. And that would be a kind of minimal um, sort of contrastive example that would cause the prediction to be different. Um, so I don't think there is a large scale like way to do this perfectly right now um you know basically until you until you like really completely have solved a task it's very hard to know oh if i make these small changes then um, i'm either changing the label or not changing the label that a human would assign i mean you either need the human or you need a model that's perfect for the task in order to do that um but so so for realism we went with human annotation is the short answer so where do explainable methods actually fit into the evaluation of your research methods? For, for kind of understanding different feature attribution methods, we kind of specifically looked at the data sets and the uh, counterfactuals that we annotated. And we came up with a set of heuristics that you know, we felt were fairly uncontroversial for saying, okay, this attribution method is making this claim about what would happen if we changed this token. Um, and then the question is, does that line up with how the model behavior actually changes when you change that token? So if you edit it and rerun the model, did the attribution method predict the right thing? So you could predict basically an accuracy number essentially about whether uh, the attribution method is telling us the right stuff. So that so there there is a, a uh, quantitative metric to um, you know, to, to put a number on how good these different things are. And I think it's, it's a little bit hard to interpret in absolute terms, but kind of relatively, we definitely see that some uh, methods are, are better than others. And some of the best ones we see actually don't attribute to individual tokens, but they in attribute to relationships between tokens, which um, in the question answering settings we're looking at is in some ways a more natural way to think about uh, the process that the model is kind of using. How do you foresee uh, issues such as uh, training biases and other related issues affecting the future of explainable AI? I, I think that it's, so I would actually answer it in the reverse direction in some sense, which is that um, I think explainable AI can say a lot about training biases. Like I think uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's, there are a lot of issues where uh, we've taken data sets and we've learned models on them, and then we've realized that those models don't actually do what we want them to do. Um, so uh, my group has looked at this in the context of like multi-hop question answering, where people were thinking that, oh, you know, these questions would take multiple pieces of information in order to resolve, and we showed that no, actually, they, the, you know, that th that's not what models are doing, and they're still getting really high performance on these uh, kind of challenging data sets. Um, so I think that this is the kind of thing where more interpretable and more explainable methods can help us avoid making those kinds of mistakes. Um, I mean, separately, I do think that explainable AI methods aren't perfect. So as the question was phrased, it was how do, how do training biases affect these methods? Um, so, I mean, I think that as we get better and better methods, we're going to have an understanding of, okay, you know, these are not only weaknesses in the underlying model, but maybe there are certain shortcomings in the methods that we're using to interpret those models. Um, and 
you know, maybe those shortcomings are sort of exacerbated by the training biases. So, uh, I mean, it's a little bit of a vague answer, but uh, I, like, I don't have a very specific kind of technique that I think will, uh, you know, will make it work better. But uh, I think in general, like, as we're going to kind of see progress on all of these front fronts, both understanding kind of diagnostic indicators for training data data to remove bias and knowing better how to look at the outcomes of trained models and understanding whether they're promulgating that bias. Um, so by kind of combining multiple pieces there, we can get a handle on it. What are you seeing, Dr. Durrett, in terms of the general research trends in uh, the field of explainable AI? Absolutely. The biggest one is a bigger focus on actual humans in the loop and, and kind of human-centric uh, studies. Um, I think a lot of the methods were kind of motivated from, uh, you know, one of the methods is based on Shapley values. Um, so they, a lot of, and, and kind of integrated gradients, like many of these have these very kind of mathematical sort of theoretical definitions that uh, there's a number of recent papers that show that even though there is this kind of mathematical or theoretical grounding for these methods, they don't actually connect or necessarily give a user the an, an idea of what the system is doing. And so one of the studies that people do is something called simulatability, where you look at uh, basically, okay, can the user look at the uh, kind of explanations here and kind of get a better understanding or can they do a better job of simulating how the model is going to behave so that's similar to what we did but in a you know there's sort of a human doing it rather than um, we did it with these kind of automated heuristics to come up with a quantitative measure um i absolutely think that this is the direction that everything has to go so uh we need to see uh we need to see more experiments with explanations being shown to actual people we need to make sure that they can kind of understand what the systems are doing and then potentially intervene on them. Um, so kind of change things about the input and really have a strong sense of how the model is going to respond to that. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I just think that like, if the whole idea is to explain stuff to people, you have to bring the people in. Like we have a whole bunch of techniques now, but like much less of an understanding of how it connects with the people. Dr. Durrett, you've already given so much information, but are there any other specific topics you'd like to cover? So Cynthia Rudin has this paper, Stop Explaining Black Box Machine Learning Models for High Stakes Decisions and Use Interpretable Models Instead. Uh, and so one of the calls there is to, basically, if you have a very complex neural network model, and then we, we try to do something like in Lyme, for example, kind of approximate its behavior locally with a linear model. Fundamentally, that's an approximation. And that approximation is always going to have some error. And so there's always a risk that like, well, let's say we get really, really good at explaining models, but we can still only, you know, we're still only kind of 95% reliable at that, right? I mean, it, it, you're never going to get to 100%. And if you're doing something really, really high stakes, 95% may not be high enough, right? Like something blowing up in one in 20 times is just way, way too high. Um, so her call there, which, which I think is another very interesting research direction, is to build models that um, are inherently interpretable. Like for example, rather than using an end-to-end -end neural network, they, you know, 
basically predict some intermediate like kind of binary variables or something like that and then you have some interpretable layer that uh, actually makes the final prediction. So this is what um, Dr. Nick Bryan's like the team has been doing with, with these uh, radiology or these like brain MRI diagnosis models. Um, kind of the, all these like intermediate indicators are fed into a base net, which is kind of completely understandable in terms of the probabilities it assigns to different diseases and symptoms given diseases, and then uh, comes up with a uh, diagnosis. So yeah, one, so one other thrust of work in my lab is looking at models that can kind of generate intermediate reasoning steps uh, in natural language. And so I think the kind of benefit of those is that rather than assuming that the neural net model is learning the reasoning end to end, we actually have a way of kind of nailing down all of the steps along the way. And of course, like there's still neural net models involved in there. It's very hard to kind of get rid of this entirely and still kind of do uh, a lot of the things we want to do with language, but uh, it anchors the process much more strongly to something that we can look at, we can reason with, we can kind of uh, get some slightly better guarantees about how the system is going to work. So um, I think that's I think that's kind of another direction which like a lot of the XAI stuff, um, you know, sort of undervalues maybe. When I read in the literature about intrinsically interpretable models, um, I've often come across things like the whole model being interpretable, like logistic regression. Uh, but are you saying that there's uh, now a field that is exploring intermediate representations for explainability? So first of all, I think it's interesting that you bring up logistic regression, because I would argue that logistic regression is also not interpretable in its own way. Like if you have two correlated features, you know, one feature might have a weight of like plus 10 in the weight vector and another has a weight of, weight of minus nine. And so you look at the minus nine thing and you say, oh, this is negatively correlated. But if it always shows up with the plus 10, then kind of the net effect is a plus one. So there's still some kind of you know, interesting twists and weights of linear models are not always as, as straightforward as they seem. Um, but setting that aside and, and answering your actual question, um, uh, I, I think I think the, the jury's still out on what the right intermediate representation should be. Um, as I said, one of the things we're looking at is natural language. So it's not about interpreting each hidden layer. It's like use a model, generate some statement in language, then take that, use that in some other model as kind of a next step. And like, you know, you end up with a kind of chain of, of reasoning statements, essentially. Um, I think there are also ways to like come up with some discrete indicator variables or things like that, where if we have a good understanding of what those variables represent, then again, we can understand, uh, we can kind of understand what the model's doing. Um, I think kind of pulling apart each hidden layer and each neuron specifically, like that approach tends to look more like the explaining a black box model where it's only ever gonna be an imperfect approximation. Dr. Durrett, you've already given so much, but thank you. And is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know? No, I don't. I don't have anything else specific. Thanks for chatting with me today. And uh, yeah, I, I always love talking about this stuff. It's such an interesting area, and uh, there's there's so much happening and and so much rapid progress that if we had the same conversation in a year or two, I'm sure it'd be very different. So yeah, thank you.